If you've been with us in recent weeks, you know we've been dealing with the Apostle Paul, who was dealing with one of the most difficult issues that he probably ever had to deal with in the time that he was an apostle for the Lord Jesus Christ. The problem was he was a good Jewish man. He was a great Jewish man. He'd studied under Gamaliel, one of the greatest of the Jewish guys. And then a funny thing happened on the way to Damascus. And his life was changed forever when he met the risen Christ. And he realized the fact that his world was going to be de different forever and ever. And it certainly was. And as he taught and he was teaching people and people were getting saved, people were coming to know Christ, and he was so excited about what was going on, he realized that he came to something that was tragic for him, was the fact that he is a good Jewish guy. Most of his Jewish friends, most of his Jewish family were not coming to faith in Jesus as Messiah. And he talks about, he will see it twice in our passage, where he talks about the anguish that he was experiencing. He thought that when they, his people would hear about what Christ has done, that Jesus really is the Messiah, that they were going to come flocking in to the, joining the church and being all this, you know, Jewish Christian, all these things going on. And some were coming. Some very significant ones came, but not in any kind of massive group that he thought would actually happen. That raises an issue. What is wrong? Is the gospel that we're preaching inadequate? And if it is, why are we even doing this if there's so few that are actually coming? And so what we remember, if we've been working in the last few weeks we've been doing this, back in chapter 8, man, that was that high point. Nothing can keep us from Christ and da-da, all that, you know, that we have and how wonderful it is. And then you come to these chapters, three key chapters that work together. They work together. We're going to see this today. Chapters 9, 10, and 11 Paul has got to deal with this issue. Why is the harvest so meek, so, so meek and so false? False, Not really false, but it's not happening the way that he thought it would be. And so we had last week, we were in chapter 9. If you have your Bible open, you might want to look with me at chapter 9. We're just looking at a really short little passage here to give us the context for chapters 10 and 11. This is chapter 9. You just might want to listen if you don't have your Bible. It says this way, Paul is speaking. I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience is testifying to me with the Holy Spirit. Now notice this phrase, that I have intense sorrow and continual anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed, cut off from the Messiah for the benefit of my brothers, my countrymen, my physical descent. All this describing, he's a Jewish Jew. He's a Jew's Jew in the best sense of the term. He said, they are Israelites, and to them go the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the Mosaic law, the, the temple service, the promises, the forefathers of theirs, and them that by physical descent came the Messiah, who's God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Amen. It's a powerful passage. But then he comes to this next phrase, but... It's not as though the, world of, the word of God has failed. Some people would say, sure sounds like it's failing. Most of your own people, the Jewish people, they're not coming. And so Paul has got an issue that he's going to have to deal with. And that issue is, if really this is the gospel, and if this is the gospel that the world needs to hear, and particularly even my Jewish people need to hear, why is it that so few are coming? And is it a problem with us, with the gospel, 
or is it something there? And so that's what Paul is going to be working on. And so we're going to be looking here at these last two chapters. It's going to be chapter 9. We talked about chapter 9, chapter 10, and 11. If you have your Bible, we encourage you to open that up if you have it. And it works better when you turn it on. So let me do that. So this passage, we're calling it the stumbling stone. We had the important key of that with last time. But we're going to be right here in Romans chapter 10. Some of it we're going to be going through rather quickly. Some of it we can't because it's so significant to what's going on. And so we've talked about a little bit just a moment ago about what was happening in chapter 9. Paul struggled over why his own people were not coming to faith. And here's what he does in chapter 10. Brothers, and I love this phrase, my heart's desire and prayer to God concerning them is for their salvation. He's concerned about his Jewish family. He said, I can testify about them that they have zeal for God. In other words, isn't that good to be zealous for God? Sure it is. But notice that last phrase, but not according to knowledge. It's saying, you know what? They're very zealous. Look at all the things they do, the foods that they eat and do not eat, all the things that they do, all the worship, all the things they do. Isn't that good? Isn't that zealous? Right, it is good. But you know what it says? It's not according to knowledge. They're not understanding what God is doing. That's a new thing is happening that God is doing among his people. And things are going to be different. And so he says, because his Jewish people, they disregard the righteousness from God and attempted to establish their own righteousness. They have not submitted to God's righteousness. That's an important phrase. Very important. He's saying they've disregarded the righteousness from God. In other words, we have our righteousness. We're very good people. We're very pious. That's true. Most of them were very biased people. He says it's not enough. You attempted to have established their own righteousness. They haven't submitted to God's righteousness. In other words, you don't have the righteousness that comes from God. Not from your works, but from God's mercy and God's grace. And so he's saying, you know what? That's not going to help you. He said, and here's verse 4 is a key verse, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now, by the way, this verse has got, you know, you get the, all the theologians together talking. There's different nuances to it. Uh, the point that he's doing here, Christ is the end of the law. In other words, that Mosaic law that God gave them there at Mount Sinai, that law that they lived from generation to generation, that was great. It was still great. But something has changed with the coming of the new covenant. That now that Christ Messiah has come, things have changed. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. It's not saying give up the Old Testament like some of the heretics did later on in the time of the church. So you don't give up the Old Testament. We're thankful for it. We thank them all that we see about it. It, it gives us all the background and a, and a, a place upon to be able to understand what we're doing. But he says it's a new ball game. When Christ has come into the earth. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. It's coming back to the fact you are not saved by what you've done, what your father did, what your great-great-granddad. It's all about what Christ has done. And it's coming to God, not by my righteousness, but by the righteousness of Christ, by recognizing, Lord, okay, I'm a sinner. I, I deserve judgment. And you in your mercy has given me grace. And it's so all who will believe. People say, that's too easy. I, I, that, that can't be true. Says, it really is true. It's the best story you've ever heard, and it's the greatest story you've ever heard, that we are declared righteous by God's faithfulness, not by our faithfulness, but by his mercy. 
And so he goes on to put it this way. He said, for Moses writes about the righteousness that's from the law. By the way, he's going to be doing Old Testament passage, one after another. A lot, from, um, a lot of it he's doing from the Psalms. A lot of it he's doing from Isaiah. If you look in your Bible, the notes, you've probably seen many of this. For Moses writes about the righteousness that's from the law. It says, quote, the one who does these things will live by them. He's telling them, listen, you're going to have to live a wonderful, perfect life, the way it seems to be described, the way it's talking about in the Bible. But he says, no, he said, but the righteousness that comes from faith, not from the law, but from faith, it speaks like this. Do not say in your heart, well, who will go up to heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Well, who will go down in the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. It's like saying, who's going to do that? We've got a Savior who is going to save us. On the contrary, what does it say? And he quotes again from the Old Testament. The message, the message of the gospel is near you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. This is the message of faith that we proclaim. He keeps coming back to the issue of not being saved by all the things that you did, but by God's mercy. And here is a famous verse that I know I memorized about 20 times when I was a kid. And it's a great verse. If you confess with your mouth, saying, quote, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And I've had many times people say, that's too easy. There must be something else you got to do. You got to do this. You got to try harder. You got to give money to the church. Says, no, that's what he says. If you confess in your mouth, that doesn't always say, I, I do believe that Jesus is Lord. And, and I believe in my heart that God has raised Christ from the dead. He said, you'll be saved. People go, it's that easy? It's that easy. And yet it's that unbelievably wonderful what God can do. Now, let me stop for a minute. We're sitting here in a nice room that they've allowed us to be able to be here, and Gates Kime has been so gracious to us, and we're grateful that we could be here. But think about the Christians that are in the Near East, Afghanistan, Syria. And when ISIS comes to your house and says, are you Christians? And you've got to make a decision real quick. It may be that means they'll kill your husband. Or they may just say, we're going to take all your property away from you. And we know what happened. Some of them said, we're not giving up. And they suffered for it. Some were killed. Some of them, unfortunately, who were Christians, at least nominal Christians, they said, well, if the choice is between that and Islam, all right, tell me what I need to do. And they become Muslims, at least, in that sense. In other words, it's saying there is a cost oftentimes for being a believer. We may yet experience that in our lifetime in this country. And if not us, maybe our children or our grandchildren. Notice what he said in verse 10. He said, with one's heart one believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth one confesses, resulting in salvation. Again, it's acknowledging, saying, Lord, I really do believe that you are Christ. You are Messiah. You are the one who is our redeemer. And I'm trusting in you as my Savior and Lord. And so he says in verse 11, going back to the scriptures, that's why we still look at the Old Testament. We just don't look study the New Testament. We look at the Old as well. Now the scripture says, quote, no one who believes in him would be put to shame. Making the same point. If you're connected to the Lord that way, there's no shame. For there's no, and then here verse 12 is an amazing verse. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. Let me stop right there. Right there, every Jewish person in the room is going, mm-mm, no way. 
No way. Our life has been for generation after generation after generation of showing a distinction between us and the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people. We are the people who have suffered from generation after generation through Persians and through Greeks and through all these different groups, all the harbor we went through. And he said, you're going to tell us all you have to do is just do that? There's no distinction? Of course there's a distinction. We are the chosen people. We are the one that God has called, to which through that he's going to bring Messiah and bring salvation to the world. And he's saying, do you recognize that? He's saying, he said, you know what? I'm a Jew's Jew in a good sense. And I'm telling you what, what's going on here, he said. He said, you know what? With what Christ has done, there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. That would make a rabbi just have an, you know, a stroke after hearing that word. That's not true. That can't be true. We are people that are distinguished from others. God put us here for a distinctive purpose. And so because of that, he said, that's the can't be true. Paul said, it is true. And they're saying, really? All these ugly people that live around us, all these people that have, you know, they, they worship Aphrodites and all these gods and goddesses, and you're going to try to tell us that somehow that God is going to bring those dirty people into what God is doing now? Paul says, absolutely, you're getting it. And they're going, I don't like it. And Paul's saying, I'm sorry to tell you that, but God is at work in great ways. Notice what he says. For everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. You say, Lord, I'm a sinner. I'm, a, I'm estranged from you. You've said that if I will come, confess you as Savior and Lord, that you'll come. Lord, I'm coming. He says, good, that's what you need to do. Now notice what he says. And he asks a question. But how can they call on him who they've not believed? In other words, how do we get this message out? How can they believe without hearing about him? How can they hear without a preacher? That's where I come in. And how can they preach unless they're sent? As it is written, again, goes back to the Old Testament, how welcome are the feet of those who announce the good gospel of good things. Going back to the Old Testament, talking how God has worked in that way for him. And he said, but not all obey the gospel. For Isaiah says, who has believed our message? So faith comes from what is heard, and what is heard comes through the message about Christ. Then he comes back to a question. But I ask, did Israel not hear? In other words, did my people not hear about what God was doing? He said, yes, they did. And he said, their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the inhabited world. And it's good that he added that phrase, inhabited world, because I doubt that the Hawaiians heard anything about it or the Eskimos. But he's saying, in our world, in this portion of the world, people have heard this message. Maybe not every single in person, but his point is, the gospel is going out. And so he asked, did Israel not understand? He's saying, he's his own people. Did my Jewish people not get the message? Did they not hear what we've been talking about in the gospel? So he goes back to the Old Testament. First, Moses said, I'm going to make you jealous of those who are not a nation. I'm going to make you angry by a nation that lacks understanding. He's basically saying, guess what? I'm going to start bringing in all those dirty Gentiles that you had nothing to do with for generation after generation. And this is an interesting thing, because notice this phrase. It's going to come in twice. This is the first. Moses said, I will make you jealous of those. Ben, I don't think I'm wrong in saying that's what eighth time is all about. Exactly. It's all about saying we want people, Jewish people, 
to recognize that the Messiah has come. There's no need to wait for the Messiah. He has come, and you can find new life in him. And so I know many of you, not many, I'm sure most of you all pray for us at our ch this church, for Grace Redeemer. We're very thankful. We need to be praying for AIDS come. This is a difficult ministry that they have. There's sometimes opposition of you know, Jewish people that are opposed to what they're doing. So let's make sure that we're not just praying for our church, but we're praying for AIDS come. And they have been very, very gracious to us. So look what Paul says. He goes back to the Old Testament, and Isaiah says boldly, I was found by those who were not looking for me, talking about the Gentiles again. I revealed myself to those who are not asking for me. But he says, he says, go Old Testament again, all day long I've spread my hands to a disobedient, defiant people. He's talking about the Jews, saying they are. They have to, they've turned away in that sense, and he's concerned about it. And he goes on in this way in the next chapter. He said, I ask you a question. Has God rejected his people? Let's stop right there. Because right there, there would be many people that would say, yes, God has rejected his people. The Jews had their time. It was a wonderful time. They had blew it because they didn't trust Jesus. Their story is over. That's sometimes referred to as replacement theology. That is, the church has overtaken what the Jews, the Jews used to be before. It's a dangerous one. It's a dangerous way of talking about that. And Paul clearly is not saying that. Because what he says is, in Greek, meganoita. It means no way. Absolutely not. In other words, he's saying, listen, there are people saying, it's all over. Israel's done. They're finished. They're out. It's now about the church. Paul says, uh-uh. He says, God has still got a purpose for his people. He's always had a purpose for his people. Things have changed, understandably. But he said, God is at work. He says, absolutely not. He says, for I'm an Israelite, a descendant from Abraham, from the tribe of Benjamin. I got all the right DNA. I've got I'm the right people. And he's saying, listen to what he says. God has not rejected his people that he foreknew. That's very important. He's not rejected his people. He is going to say that his people are going to experience suffering and struggle. But he's saying, God has not rejected them. He says, or do you not know what the scripture says in the Elijah section? The section he's talking about, remember we're there on the mountaintop, and they're saying, bring the you know, fire up here. And they're all up there dancing around and cutting themselves. And, you know, oh, Baal, come on and bring down the fire. And nothing happens. And you know what happens with Elijah? They all get cooked. You know, they're toasted in the whole deal. And, of course, the king is not happy about that, and his wife is even more unhappy about that. And he does what? He flees. He gets out of there because he knows he's going to die. Elijah is. And so go. He go you know, right here, Paul goes back to the Old Testament to use a story. He said, or do you not know what the scripture says in the Elijah section? Remember this? How he pleads with God against Israel. Like, Lord, they're all against me. Oh, I'm going to die. And life is horrible. And everything's awful. Lord, they've killed your prophets. They've tore down your altars. I'm the only one left. And they're trying to take my life. What a big pity party this guy's going through right here. But what does God reply? How, how does, what was God's reply to him? I can see God smiling, saying, you know what? I've got 7,000 men for myself who've never bowed down to Baal. A 
That's a great verse. I have 7,000 men for myself who have never bailed down to bail. You think you're the last person alive that's serving God. How about 7,000? Can God do something with 7,000 people? I bet he can. Now, by the way, this is important. Let me pause with this for a second. We're living in a time where our culture is changing so dramatically, where many churches are closing, many churches are struggling, and there's many people think, well, the whole place is going to hell in a handbasket and how terrible things are, and there are some terrible things that are happening. We need to go back to this verse where God says, I've left 7,000 men for myself. God will always have his witness. There'll never be a time until we come to the time when Christ comes in power and glory. He'll always have his people. It may be a smaller group of people, but there'll always be people who know the Lord, who serve the Lord. And so we take that position, we look at that from the Old Testament now, from the New. It says, in the same way, there's at this present time a remnant chosen by grace. Now notice that phrase. Paul's going to use that word remnant another time. He's going to talk about the fact that Israel is going to have a remnant. That's going to go on. There's going to be part of a remnant that is not following Jesus Messiah. But there are that are, that are good Messianic Christians. We talk about it here at Eight's Kime. He said, in the same way, there's also at the present time a remnant chosen by grace. Now, notice what he says. Now, if by grace, then it's not by works. Otherwise, grace ceased to be grace. In other words, it's not about what you've done. It's about what Christ has done for you. And it's all about faith, not about your works. Well, what then? Did Israel not find what was looking for, but the elect did find it? He said, the rest were hardened. This is a hard verse, by the way, next two verses. God, he says, and they were hardened. Again, he quotes the Old Testament. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they cannot see, ears they cannot hear to this day. This is a hard passage. He's basically saying because they failed to respond to the, to the gospel that was given to them, he said, well, then he'll make, they'll make their darkness even darker. Now, some of us struggle with that, like, well, you know, everybody just believed in Jesus. It's like the saying, but these are the chosen people. These are God's people. These are people that have had multiple opportunities of knowing what God's doing. He said, they've turned away. And he said, so they cannot hear. They cannot see to this very day. And he goes and takes another one from the Old Testament. David says, let their feasting become a snare and a trap a pitfall and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs be bent continually. If the passage just ended right there, this would be a very sad, very tra tragic passage. But it's not, thank goodness. He says, I ask then, have they stumbled? Paul's asking this rhetorical question. I ask then, have they stumbled so as to fall? In other words, have the people of Israel, the Jewish people, have they blown it? Is their story ended? Is it all gone? Absolutely not. He likes that Greek phrase, meganoita, no way. On the contrary, by their stumbling, the Jewish people who have not responded, by their stumbling, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now notice the phrase, to make Israel jealous. When, God's, when these people, you know, Gentile people who are not, you know, have coming out, not for Jews, when they see God working in such a remarkable way, they're going to go, hey, well, God seems to be working with those dirty Gentiles, and, and, and how come we're not experiencing that? Well, that's a great question you ought to be asking yourself, because maybe you have turned away from Messiah and need to know him that he is your Messiah, he is your Lord. 
So he says, so now if they're stumbling, if Israel's stumbling brings riches for the world and their failure riches to the Gentiles, how much more will their full number bring? Now he says, now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. That's most of us in this room right here. I'm speaking to you Gentiles in view of the fact that I'm an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry. If I can somehow make my own people jealous, there's that word for the third time, and save some of them. I want them to show them the glory that we have in the gospel, the fact that they can have salvation through faith in Christ, not by their works, but by God's mercy. And he said, if somehow I can make my own people, my Jewish people, jealous about them, that's what I want to do. That's what Eitzchim is committed to doing. That people would say, really? You think he really is our Messiah? You better believe it. He really is. He said, for their being rejected, it comes out to be world reconciliation. What will their acceptance mean with life from the dead? In other words, when God finally works in their life and they come in full faith. He said, now if the first fruits offered up are holy, at least top of a minute, we know the Old Testament, but the first fruits, you had to give the first portion of it to the Lord. It was kind of like, here's the first of it, and when the rest is going to come. He said, now if the first fruit offered up are holy, so is the whole batch. Remember the woman who would do this before Passover, and you would want to clean the whole thing up. You could put the batch of stuff in there, and it would start getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and that you would use for your food. He says, if the root is holy, so are the branches. And here he's going to use this illustration about the branches. Now, stay with me on the branches, because it's easy to get caught up in the branches. Okay? Stick with me on this one passage. Now, if some of the branches were broken off, and you though a wild olive branch was granted, grafted in among them, and they've come to share in the rich root of the cult of olive tree. Let's stop right there. Now, if some of the branches were broken off, and you, through a wild olive branch, he's talking about the wild olive thing, he's talking about the Gentiles. He's using this idea of, of like a tree. This place is called Eitzchim, tree of life. It's this idea of a tree. It goes right down to the solid ground down there, where out of there comes the tree that grows. And he's saying, but what if some of those branches were broken off? And the you, though a wild olive branch. Now, also, there was you know, the regular ones that were cultivated generation after generation. But the ones that were the wild ones that were there, the wild branches. And they, this is very common. They were very good at doing this. Well, we're going to take this wild branch, and we're going to stick it together on this one that's a solid one and see what we have. And he said, well, they've come to share in the rich root of the cultivated olive tree. So do not brag that you're better than those branches. But if you do brag, don't, don't, do you not know? Uh, do you not sustain with the root, but the root sustains you? He's going back here to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs. He's saying, don't get arrogant, Gentiles, thinking about, oh, yeah, we're in. Israel's out. We're in and they're out. Isn't that great? Uh-uh. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, you know what? Don't get arrogant about that. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that's, that's, quite a, that's quite a tree that you got growing there. And you were outsiders. You were never part of that, you Gentiles. You're connected on it now, but you weren't part of the original group. And so he says this very quickly. Then you will say, well, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. He says, well, that's true. True enough, they were broken off by unbelief. But you stand by faith. So he says, don't be arrogant. Don't be afraid. He said, for if God did not spare the natural branches, the branches that were there, will he not spare you either? And then this is an interesting phrase in verse 22. Therefore, consider God's kindness and severity. It's an unusual phrase. 
Remember, he said, God's kindness and severity. Severity towards those who have fallen. He's talking about the fact that there were many Jewish people that fell away from that. But God's kindness towards you, if you remain in his kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off, speaking there in that sense to the Gentiles. And even they, if they do not remain in unbelief, will be grafted in, because God has the power to graft them in. In other words, if they have turned away from that great trip, the tree of Israel, and they've gone away from that, God's powerful enough to get them back in that tree. He's going to do what he needs to do with his people. He said, for if you were cut off from a native wild olive, and against nature, you were grafted and kind of cultivated, excuse me, cultivated olive tree, you know, you're the wild Gentiles being brought in, well, how much more will these natural branches, the ones that were, have the right DNA, they're on the right tree, how much will those natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? In other words, God's going to do great, amazing things in this situation. So that you will not be conceited, brothers, I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery. Now, notice this key phrase. A partial hardening has come to Israel, but it doesn't stop there until the full number of the Gentiles comes in. That's a very important phase of what he's talking about. He said, you know what? God, because Israel, for the most part, has not accepted Messiah. Israel has said they're not going to have Jesus as as their Messiah. Again, some did, most did not. And he said, you know what? And God said, okay, your rejection of what has been made clear to you means the reality is that there's going to be even more darkness. It's a very sad passage in that sense. But notice he says the word partial, not complete. A partial hardening has come to Israel until the full number of the Gentiles come in. Till that day when God brings his people, we talk about the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, when God has that, whatever that number is for the Lord, whatever that million, billion people that are going to be coming to faith in Christ, he said, when that happens, Israel's going to see their Messiah, and they're going to see who their Savior is and recognize that Jesus really is Messiah. And in this way, all Israel be saved. Now, he's not talking about the Eskimos and stuff like that, but he's talking about all those who are there who are involved in this. He says it's written, the liberator will come from Zion. He'll turn away godlessness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Regarding the gospel, he talks about the Jewish people. Well, they're enemies to your advantage. That's another hard phrase. Saying, well, in a sense, they are. By the time when all this was being written by the Apostle Paul, he was experiencing persecution against his Jewish people. The next couple generations, they were going to experience persecution from their Jewish people. And he said, well, regarding the gospel, they are enemies for your advantage. And regarding election, but regarding election over God's choice, boy, they are loved because of the forefathers. In other words, God has never given up on his Jewish people. Since God's gracious gift and calling are irrevocable. If God made that promise to God, he's going to keep it. It may go through a circuitous way back and forth till it happens, but God will do his work with his people. As you once disobeyed God, but now you've received mercy through their disobedience, so they now have now disobeyed, resulting in mercy to you, so you may now receive mercy. Notice this phrase, for God has imprisoned all in disobedience. We've all sinned. We've all come. But so that we may all have mercy on all. He recognizes we're all sinners and we need God's redemption. 
Now notice what he says, and I love this last phrase. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable is his judgments, how untractable his ways. It is a beautiful pastor passage. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who's ever first given to him that he's going to be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And all God's people said, Amen. We are in the middle of a great meta-narrative that God has worked. God brings creation. God brings man. Man turns away to God. God provides a way through the sacrificial way so they have a relationship with God. God brings Messiah to bring salvation to the world until we come to that date where we're together before the Lord. And we're somewhere right in that great meta-narrative of what God is doing. You say, we're just a tiny part of that great narrative. That's true, but we're part of it. It begins with creation and it ends with a new heavens and a new earth where there's a place of righteousness. All of this ultimately goes together, what God is doing through his people and what he is yet to do. And there's so much more to see before we finally stand before him. Father, we thank you for this passage. We recognize that chapters 9, 10, and 11 are so different from what we understand in terms of it seems strange to us. But we pray, Father, that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you'd help us to see how you have worked so mightily through your people. And you're going to continue to do that great work. And for that, we give you great praise. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.